Hello, my name is David Ades. Uh, I'm a poet based in Sydney and have been hosting a monthly poetry series, reading series uh, for the last couple of years called Poets Corner out of Westwards in Parramatta in Sydney's West. Um, and just to have a little statement about Westwards. Uh, Westwards is Western Sydney's literature development organisation. Um, Poets Corner is part of Westwards public programming that celebrates the richness, diversity and insight literature offers. Especially in these times, we thank the ongoing support of Create New South Wales, the Cultural Fund of Copyright Australia, City of Parramatta Council, Blacktown City Council and Campbelltown City Council, as well as the many project partners that have enabled us to continue to provide opportunities to writers and audiences. We hope that this new world will see a sharing and a closeness of spirit. Just by way of background, um, Poets Corner started up a couple of years ago. Uh, and the idea behind it was that I would invite one poet to read poetry and speak about their poetry on a theme of the poet's choice. Uh, I wanted to do this because I found the the five minute uh, open mic sessions or the short 10 minute guest readings didn't really give an audience enough of a chance to engage with a poet. Uh, and um, I wanted to add something else to it. I wanted to ask poets and I have asked poets to select a theme of their choice um, and to orient their talk around and their reading around that theme. It's been a wonderful series um, live. Uh, it's been intimate, it's been engaging, Audience have really, audiences have really appreciated it, the poets have really appreciated it. And now in this post-COVID-19 world, we can't do it live. So uh, we obviously wanted to continue it, we wanted to bring poets to people, we wanted to continue the conversation, and that's what we're doing now in a slightly altered format. Um, Before I start, uh, I would like to um, do an acknowledgement of country. I'm recording this from my home in Beecroft in Sydney. Our guest poet today, uh, Peter Bukowski, whom I will introduce in a moment, is recording from his home in Richmond, Melbourne. And I would like to pay my respects to and acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging of the Wallamita people, the traditional custodians of the land in Beecroft, and also of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land in Richmond, and to acknowledge also that their land has never been ceded or given up. Now, for the good bit. Peter Bukowski. Melbourne-based poet Peter Bukowski wrote his first poem while staying at a friend's farmhouse in Waco, Texas in 1983 in response to receiving a Dear John letter from a Melbourne girl and one day, Peter, I'd like you to tell me more about all that. He has since published seven full length collections as well as the recent The Elsewhere Variations, uh, co-written with Ken Bolton. Uh, Peter has been a writer in residence in Rome, Paris, Macau, Suzhou in China, as well as at a number of locations in Australia. He is selected as his theme for Poets Corner, what it's like to be a human being, something which he says is what all his books are about. Hi, Peter. Hi there, David. I'd like to start um, by asking you to talk a little about your theme. Um, notice 
in reading some of your books that in the preface you've said, my aim as a poet is to write clear and accessible poems, to use ordinary words to say extraordinary things. No matter how many books I write in my lifetime, they will all be about what it's like to be a human being. And uh, reading that, it sounds to me like it's a very conscious and deliberate theme, uh, not so much something that has emerged from your writing as something that is integral to it. I was interested to know um, how early in your writing it became apparent to you that this was going to be a kind of dominant theme for you and how you think the theme has evolved in your writing over the years. The theme uh, was in my first um, book, which was called In the Human Night. And the word human uh, is a key word in, in my poetry because it's, each collection questions that what, it, what, it, what is this experience of being human? And very interesting, we get the word human and the word humane. And some humans are inhumane. Uh, so having parents who lived through the Second World War, where there were examples of inhumanity, uh, I just wanted to, it gives me a way to, via the portrait poem, not generalise about humankind because there's individual responses to uh, pivotal events in a life. There's individual responses to the virus right now. There's not generalised responses. Um, so I always want to bring the reader or the listener's attention back to the individual because we can't be conclusive and generalize. Uh, if we could be conclusive about human beings, I think that would make dictators' jobs a lot more easier because they could corral them and categorize them. But human beings constantly uh, dismay and hearten us. So it's an inexhaustible uh, topic. And I, I just knew it early on, um, probably having a sense of mortality with my uh, being born with a heart condition. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've, you've asked me to choose poems from three of your books. Yes. Uh, which uh, the elsewhere variations, which you co-wrote with the Adelaide-based poet Ken Bolton, uh, Wardrobe of Selves, and an earlier book, Beneath Our Armour. Um, I actually found it a challenge to pick poems because there were so many I liked. Um, and I know that any other reader would have picked a completely different set of poems. So yeah. um, there's a kind of randomness to it, which I, I, I kind of like. Um, I've just gone for some of the ones that appealed to me. Yeah, sure. And uh, I'd like you to start with the title poem, To Water of Ourselves, which seems a perfect place to start on the theme of what it's like to be a, a human being. Yeah, this poem is to do with the, um, my belief that each person is a multiplicity of selves. There's a famous quote from Bob Dylan where he says, uh, I get up each morning and I don't know what self I'm going to be that day. 
And I don't think he's meaning it in a schizophrenic sense. It's just in the terms of we, within any 24-hour cycle, we can go through a variety of moods. Uh, so here's the title poem, Wardrobe of Selves. Addressing your life, perhaps that's overdue or not really you, winking or wilting in front of the mirror. Maybe everything's arranged or in disarray. Consider what to wear, what wears you. Roll with the punches, not with the paunch you may have acquired. Dress to the nines or only the fours. Perhaps it's time to ride that bucking bronco tethered beneath your ribs. Your obituary needn't be an ode to daring, but if you're able, do venture beyond the perimeter of your toenails. Rush or gingerly ease into revealing yourself. Who you are may be of less importance than how you are, flummoxed or fulfilled. Both are cyclical. Some selves are secret, take themselves to the grave, their existence exposed in a diary, a bundle of letters, angers and loves, visions and regrets, not torn in half, not rewritten. Versions of ourselves, face half in shadow under a hat brim, a lewd, conclusive portraiture. Brush the lint from your cautious shoulders. Your true self may be in the vicinity, awaiting your arrival. I was wondering uh, to what extent that poem is an exploration of your own self rather than sort of something out to the world at large. Well, I think um, I'm quite a big fan of painters. I'm always uh, self-educating myself about um, contemporary painters. And painters do self-portraits every few years, not particularly out of ego but more a sort of chronicle or recording of themselves so i find it fascinating when people it could even be a friend or a very close friend well and they might say to you oh you don't seem yourself today and you sort of think well shouldn't oneself know oneself better than anyone else but there's of course the idea of self-delusion versus self-examination. And that's something, again, in my ex exploration of what it's like to be a human being. Some people are really scared of looking at themselves and they, they suppress maybe uh, the party animal in themselves or they suppress um, maybe sometimes they manage to su suppress their angry self and maybe that self needs a release valve that's, that's not directed at another human being, but maybe at throwing an egg against a wall, you know. So uh, that idea of multiplicity of selves, uh, I feel that's true. Like in the space of two hours, I can be optimistic, pessimistic. Um, and I, I study animals too, how they're, that idea of simply being, I feel 
human beings find that very hard to just simply be. We're so self-conscious, we overthink, we, we worry. I mean, we, we particularly worry at this moment in time and I'm against the idea of worrying because most of our worry, worrying is projected into the future, not the present. There's also, I guess, an expectation by people that there is a consistent self. Well, yeah, I mean, arguably the idea is to progress and evolve, evolve and improve as, as an individual. Um, that idea of self-improvement in a, in a non-preachy way, you know, if we each of us self-improve, theoretically we might have a better, a better world. If Donald Trump self-improved, uh, things would be better. <laughs> well, I see that there's a there's a map behind you, which seems very fitting. Yeah, uh, your your poetry is peopled with many characters, uh, many names of people, many locations around the world from your travelling, and many specific dates. Um, some going back to a particular date, fifty or sixty years ago. I, I, I'm intrigued by the degree of specificity of location and date in your work and i'm interested to know more about what is behind it i'd like to know to what extent the moment of the poem is researched as opposed to simply imagined um i do a lot of research poems uh i quite enjoy the challenge of researching a poem enough to make it accurate and atmospheric so if i said a poem during the uh, nazi occupation of paris i've done a fair bit of research on that and i usually create a representative character to be the main protagonist in that poem and their actions or inactions and their emotions hopefully say something about the atmosphere of that era. And, you know, if you, as you've read my Sylvia Plath poem, uh, that involved reading several biographies of Sylvia Plath. And the most helpful thing in one of those poems about Sylvia was the one sentence that said it was the coldest winter in a hundred years when Sylvia took her alive. So um, these facts, it's a, it's a mixture of tying facts to the imagination. And yeah. also when you, again, going back to painters, you'll see painters often put the date on their painting or on the reverse side of the painting. And, if we do the research, we'll, we'll see that, you know, Pablo Picasso, for example, had, had recent falling out with one of his models, you know, and that's why the painting is what it is. Uh, so it's, it's all, it's, it's about the idea of being accurate and authoritative. I want my poems to be credible and to take the reader or the listener into that place and into that era. 
And I have written poems set in places that I've never been to. But mainly, mainly it's places I've been to. Well, I, I really enjoyed um, your Greek island poems, um, having spent a fair bit of time wandering through the islands myself. Um, so I chose um, one of the poems uh, in that series, Isolated Cottage, Scopolis, 16th October, 1972. Yeah, I'll read that poem. Um, Helen and I spent a month on the Greek island of Skopelos. And while I was there, I was reading memoirs of Skopelos. So this poem's called Isolated Cottage, Skopelos, 16th of October, 1972. Ink spilt on the best tablecloth. Now that the guests have gone, Papa removes his belt, screams that I deserve such a thrashing. Healing, never found in the loose hinged medicine cabinet. Each cut, each plea, each fleck of blood on the bedroom wall prepares me for what I must thieve from this implosive house. Now, this dawning hour, I'll pay with every drachma stolen for passage to the mainland, where I'll sing in concert and dance hall louder than the roar of any father. So you imagined yourself into this young boy's head? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a woman. So um, it's the idea of, um, I remember meeting a, a Greek girl in, in Melbourne and she had a very strict upbringing. And so I know a lot of migrant people who had very strict parental upbringing. So this, this poem is about often migrant fathers, particularly if they have a daughter, can't seem to handle the idea of the daughter having a, a independent life or, or a sexuality. So I brought that to this poem and it was inspired by seeing an isolated cottage on a mountain in Skopelos and then using the visual of the isolated cottage and imagining a dramatic scene inside that cottage. And I've sent, set the poem in the time of the drachma when they still had drachma because I just thought the word drachma <laughs> sounded better than euro. <laughs> and, and also society and even Greek society has evolved since the 1970s and probably the life for, for daughters is not as strict as it was back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And the 1970s is the year that I moved out of home. So I suppose it's sort of symbolic. The, the daughter in the poem breaking away in the year 1972. Um, you know, you've mentioned uh, your, po your portrait poems. Um, it's a recurrent feature in all your books. Um, and you probably do more portrait poems than any other poet I know. Um, I like the back cover of Beneath Our Armour, uh, which says um, this sequence of portrait poems covers vast tracts of history, geography and personae in a way that is at once intimate and epic. Intimate because Bukowski imagines his way into the lives of individuals as radically disparate 
as Cyril Connolly, Diego Rivera, Sylvia Plath, and Elizabeth Smart. Epic because he transports us from Krakow in Poland to Old Macau and onto Bedford Square, London, and even Lower Templestowe in Melbourne, and from pitch battles to civilized dinner parties. Um, the portraits aren't confined to people, um, but include poems like Portrait of the Color Black and Portrait of Blood. Uh, I really enjoyed those poems. Can you read Portrait of Blood for us, please? Okay. Uh, this is a very autobiographical poem and it's inspired by uh, having been born with a hole in the heart and having a lot of experience in hospitals and seeing my own blood in tubes and canisters. So I decided to write a portrait of blood because it's <laughs> we've all got it and it's... Uh, very important portrait of blood. The thin armor you give the newborn, the midwife washes away. In playgrounds, when the bullied fall, you rush to the hill of a bruise. The shape of your engine room, lovers carve into tree trunks. In war, you blossom from every wounded soldier and civilian. In the field hospital, you glisten on the gloved hands of surgeons and each busy scalpel. You're not to be trusted, rummaging in the attic of our skulls, studying the blueprints of our veins, deciding where to place your quick assassins, clot and hemorrhage. I hold my breath, check my pulse as you make your rounds. Yeah. Um, your theme lends itself to the exploration of human emotions. Uh, I don't think there's too many of your poems where emotion isn't, if not front and center, somewhere in the poem. And the whole gamut of emotions is expressed through the poems, tenderness, compassion, rage, loneliness, sadness, reflection, just to name a few. Um, I like the description on the back cover of uh, Wardrobe of Selves. Um, the real and fictitious individuals portrayed in Wardrobe of Selves represent a spectrum of responses to pivotal human moments of idyll and dilemma, creativity and fury. Um, I, I, I looked for fury and I found it in your poem, uh, Portrait of Willem de Koenig Springs, Long Island, 31st December, 1973. Uh, I'd love you to read that. I, I saw an exhibition of de Koenig's in, uh, in Paris in the 1980s and uh, was completely blown away by it. So that poem resonated with me. Oh, so again, that was based on reading a really fat biography of de Koenig. And then I also read a, again, 900-page book on f female abstract expressionists, including Elaine de Koenig, who was uh, very important to Willem's life. And uh, at the same time, it gave me the background of the sort of art feuds that were happening and competitiveness of de Koenig against... Um, Jackson Pollock, etc., etc. So here's the poem Portrait of Willem de Koenig, Springs, Long Island, 31st of December, 1973. 
king of bluntness, I paint those in my circle, all the wounded and wounding, their cigarette mouths, their sewerage hair. I pace back and forth here in the studio, pause to toast with another whiskey, my imaginary brother. From the mirror, he offers no protest as I sway before an overworked semblance of myself, which I may wrench from the easel, stomp underfoot. I have no steady compass or companion, only these brush strokes, yellow, blue, red flares that I launch into the sky. Paint fumes and fumings. Sometimes I fall to my knees, exhausted. I'm looking for the door in each painting, one that leads beyond the battlefield of my life, where I can sit in a chair and think about light, the way it anoints a bared shoulder, the paint-peeled hull of a beach dinghy. I paint out of knowing and out of not knowing enough, each granted day and night, until the brush falls from my striving hand. So I couldn't have written that poem without reading the biography and um, Willem's struggle with um, alcohol, uh, his very important series of women paintings, which were shocked a lot of people, um, and how he destroyed some of his own paintings and here how he lived in northern long island because the landscape reminded him of holland mm. so all those factors helped me uh make the poem give yeah. it the strength i suppose yeah no it comes across it came across to me on reading it uh, very strongly um now you've mentioned that your theme is inexhaustible <laughs> i suppose in a sense um because you're focusing a lot on portraits and everyone's idiosyncratic. Uh, yeah. there, there is a, an endless range of possibilities. But do you ever worry about repeating yourself? Um, I'm influenced by this quote. Um, by, uh, it's attributed to Robert Frost and it's, make your next poem different from your last. Mm. So I'm very conscious of trying to come up with a refreshing image. And I think each person's life is different enough to avoid that, avoid that sort of repetition. Yeah. Just moving around this. Yeah, just different enough to avoid that repetition. Um, I have actually written two poems about Sylvia Plath, but I felt I approached them from different different angles um it, it's a danger but i'm i'm aware of it i'm very aware of not repeating myself and i use a quote by william faulkner and that's um no interest for the writer no interest for the reader so if i'm doing a a poem and it's becoming a bit tedious or laborious or i'm straining with the poem, then I think, well, it's going to be tedious and laborious and a strain for the listener or the reader. So I do a lot of deleting of poems. Mm -hmm. 
And I try and show within each poetry collection a spectrum, a variety of poems that I'm capable of, of you know, going beyond the nature poem, going beyond the portrait poem, writing acrostic poems, writing very brief haiku-influenced poems. Uh, I'm really interested in that variety. Um, as I'm interested in the variety of responses to life that individuals keep showing us. Um, it's been nice for me to read your books um, whilst uh, self-isolating because I, I've felt like I'm a bit of an armchair traveller, um, getting to go all over the world um, through the locations in your, in your books. Now, location is very central, very pivotal part of your writing. Um, it's usually more, I think, context and backdrop rather than front and centre. Uh, but there are also quiet meditative poems where location is inspiration for reflection. Um, and I'd like you to read at Brunswick Heads, New South Wales, September 2006, which I, I think is one of those types of poems. Yes, my family and I used to go to Brunswick Heads when it was a very sleepy place. It's been a bit gentrified and the population's increased now and it's a bit... So that's why it's good to catalogue a place or chronicle a place. Uh, this is now 14 years ago at Brunswick Heads, New South Wales, September 2006. The river is brown-hued, wide. In its shallows, small black fish appear, hyphens of life, pleasing barefoot children. The river is pelican-ushered to the sea. The beach curves south to a crop of hills where a white lighthouse stands, its spiralling stairs now climbed by camera-burdened tourists. In the sky, there's a small plane, silver-bellied, gone when you've turned to a Ruth Rendell paperback. This coastline asks you to name yourself, fisherman, beachcomber, surfer, retiree, to examine whether you're more than that, a gull eases from rock to sky, becomes a speck and miracle to a small boy, a sandcastle lord, standing sandy-kneed, squinting. The wind, the waves, play their games of give and take. The horizon searches its deep pockets for the making of tomorrow's weather. Hmm. Um, thank you. I'm enjoying the readings. Um, hope everybody else is too. Um, well, we've mentioned Sylvia Plath. You yeah. mentioned Sylvia Plath, and you've mentioned Sylvia Plath because I told you that I wanted you to read your Sylvia Plath, uh -huh. book, the one that I selected. Um, and partly that was because I wrote a poem about Sylvia Plath mm -hmm. in my youth. Um, but I, I've always wondered whether or not that's a risk for a poet to do, to write about a poet as strong and as controversial in some ways as Sylvia. Um, it is a bit of a risk, I think. Um, I think you've pulled it off. Um, Sylvia Plath, writing in a journal, 23 Fitzroy Road, London, February 1963. Okay. 
Um, again, so this required a lot of research. I read every Sylvia Plath biography there there is. I read the uh, biography of Asia Wevel, the woman that um, Ted left Sylvia for. Um, and then I wrote this poem. 7am, beyond the bedpost, no mirage of glad husband moving tall towards me with his English offer of toast and marmalade, a cup of tea. He's with another. She has mongrel blood and Knightsbridge accent, can turn a man into a spinning top, an arsonist in the house of marriage. Mm -hmm. One day she'll become a book that my husband has tired of reading. I'll go soon, far from Massachusetts, Devon, London, the zoo where myself are caged, venomous snake, sacrificial lamb, sleepless monkey examining its fleas. Outside, snowflakes fall, drafts of a poem torn to bits. In the night sky, I see the zookeeper from his starlit belt, important keys hang. He moves towards me, I towards him, will embrace where it's black. So the, the image there where um, the snowflakes are like a poem torn to bits, there's this incident where Sylvia saw Ted talking to a very pretty female English student in the quadrangle from their apartment window. She saw that and she ripped up all of Ted's poems that were lying around in the apartment. So drafts of a poem torn to bits. Yeah. But I compare that to the snowflakes. Yeah. Um, well, we don't write in vacuums. I've wondered uh, whether you had sort of feedback from people on reading that poem. Some people really like it, but uh, one review I had um, said, oh, there should be a moratorium on writing poems about Sylvia Plath. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I feel Sylvia came up with some amazing images. Um, and I related to her too with um, times in hospitals, her relationship with surgery and nurses, uh, which even though a surgeon in a hospital can save your life, there's something strange about your bodily being, your body being violated perhaps by scalpel and anaesthetic. Well, I had a lot of fun reading your collaborative book with Ken Bolton, The Elsewhere Variations. Um, a lot of fun. It's full of uh, whimsy and play and irreverence with you and Ken tossing poems to one another and riffing off each other's work in all kinds of directions in a conversational bantering way. It was as much fun for you to write as it was for me to read? It was a lot of fun. And um, I think Ken and I, without stating it, we want to sort of, um, I think poetry can get a bit too serious and we, we satirise the scene a little bit because I don't know what the scene is like. 
in your part of New South Wales, but it can be very um, touchy and there's feuds and there's falling outs and there's reconciliations within the poetry scene. Um, so we, we sort of try and deflate that a little bit and, and yeah, I think you know, to me in any time of crisis, um, humor is as, as important as, as seriousness. Um, not, not in an escapist way, but in a, in a like surrealism, we're both interested in surrealism and, the idea of having a, a, a sense of the absurd. Yeah. Uh, mm. The tone, uh, that, that, that book came out in 2019, the same mm. year that Water of Ourselves came out. Two very different books with two yeah. very different tones. Um, were you writing them both at the same time? How were you managing that? Um, Elsewhere Variations was written completely via email and it was written last summer oh no the summer before the one we've just had and it occurred over an eight week period like i would send i initially sent a poem to ken which mentioned ken in it and then he responded and i responded to his response and some days we would write two two response poems each which for me, was kind of unprecedented because, for example, my Sylvia Plath poem, I revised that 12 times over two years. Mm. But I think both Ken and I have been writing poems over 35 years, so I think we've got a certain amount of ammunition and ability. So it was, it was like a jazz riffing, yeah. a riffing idea. Yeah, riffing. Was it kind of liberating? Yeah, yeah. It uh, And I had no idea that I would write the poems that I wrote in Elsewhere Variations and they're obviously there in my subconscious and uh, they found their, their outlet. And Ken and I have already finished another volume <laughs> uh, of... of our collaborative oh, poems. That's wonderful. But yeah. Ken, Ken's known for his collaborations with John Jenkins and others yeah. for many years, but I hadn't seen any of your work in a collaboration form before. Is this something new for you? Yeah, yeah. And um, Ken and I have known each other for a fair while and we have similar interests, especially in music, mm. uh, blues and jazz. So... Uh, and we both like going to Europe, so and then we we sort of make a bit of fun of the what I call the the gum leaf tradition of Australian poetry. So Ken particularly um, seems to have been in his bonnet about um, sort of rural Australian poetry, and we're both urban poets, so. I think the reality is most Australians live in urban or suburban areas. So I think there's a bit of a romantic hangover with the, with the, the what Ken and I call the gum leaf poem, which is a bit irreverent in its own way, uh, us saying that. 
Well, I'd love you to uh, read and talk about a couple of the poems from this book where I think you get into the heads of your, I imagine, created characters in interesting, yeah. I think, different ways. Um, the two poems I'm thinking of are Palisades and Perspectives. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with Palisades because um, I've, this is a poem Ken wrote and it's inspired by a part of New Jersey that influenced the poet August Kleinzahler. And this is Ken's response to his poem about that amusement park in New Jersey, this area of New Jersey called Palisades. I almost forgot to notice some nights my sister's voice because I work there myself these days. My shift varies, but mostly I work days, finish around three in the afternoon or 4.30, rarely nights. I'm on tickets for the ghost train. Sometimes have to check the train itself, the carriages, the line even. Most nights I'm home and sometimes if the wind is right, I hear her voice. She's gone now. A taped recorded voice at midnight when old Quinby presses the button. A message to performers, workers, vendors, and to the customers whom she addresses over the loudspeaker. The last voice before the lights go out. Thank you. Good night. The lights are doused. The loud murmur that is the fairground with its buzzer voices, sounds of rides, has subdued. I used to hear it as a kid. Yeah, I love that poem of Ken's. Uh, it's it's great imaginative poem, and it's it's very tender about the sister who's who's died, and uh, it conjures up the fairground at a distance. Uh, it's great. Oh, yeah, you got me there because I, I tried very hard to work out who had written which poems. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was one of yours. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, maybe we, uh, there was a bit of amoebic interchange, cross-pollination. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the other poem you asked about was uh, Perspective. Is that one of yours? No, again, that's... Oh, it, it, have I got any of these three right? No, no you have, you have. But it's, it's been... It's nice for me to read them. Um, so this is set in Coogee. Uh, there's, a, there's sometimes a volley of poems where Ken and I in the... Sometimes we're in New York for about four or five poems and then towards the end of the book, we're in Coogee and Sydney, different parts of Sydney. So this is a Ken poem called Perspective, Coogee, Sydney 2016. Janie comes in. Hi, Jane, I greet her, a skinny thing, but pretty. Her eye goes to my hand on the lounge near John's, my ex-husband's, her boyfriend's. One daughter also beside me, 
the other two playing on the carpet before us. I move my hand and she says, yes, with a smirk. We're friends, she and I, me and John. I think she'll always be my friend, that this is likely. Then I think, but when I hitch up with some guy, John and I will be less close, whereas Jane and I will carry on. I feel a sudden, small pang for John. Will John be lonely? Men don't make friends. And a sudden corresponding warmth for both of them, as from the future, or as for the future, for this, and I'm weirdly sad. It's lonely being so insightful, out of time, comfortless, older. You look into the abyss and it stares right back. <coughs> yeah. So yeah, I had to practice reading uh, Ken's poem a couple of times, but again. I only got, I only got one out of... I only got one out of three, right? Oh, well, that's, that's actually, I think that's, a, that makes us very proud that we uh, managed to make this sort of new third, third person persona poem. Well, uh, I wanted to finish up with okay. uh, what I thought is an irresistible joyous, joyous flight of fancy. Okay. Used to me as a poet, um, and I think that actually sets up some of the fabulous exchanges between you and Ken that I so enjoyed in the book. Your poem, I hope it's your poem. <laughs> Like-minded. Like -minded. So this is this one set in uh, Richmond, my suburb. Uh, Like-minded. 8 p.m. Monday night. There are three drunk haiku poets in the car park behind the Coles supermarket in Swan Street. One of them says he's drained more cups of wine than Lee Poe. Another claims he's got married four times to the same woman. He loves his Veronica that much. The third haiku poet takes a brick out of his Hessian satchel, has a go at throwing it at the full moon. The brick falls short, lands on his sandaled right foot, which starts bleeding. The two other haiku poets begin to recite poems that include copious blood references. Three cops arrive. They recognise the haiku poets. One of the cops shyly admits that since his girlfriend left him for a plumber, he started writing haiku, proceeds to pull a creased A4 page from his back pocket, illuminates the neat handwritten words with his torch. The three haiku poets re re react ecstatically to the, po the cop's poems, urge him to submit them to the poetry editor at Mianjin. The cop blushes, then grins. The two other cops know of a new wine bar in Church Street. They shepherd the three haiku poets into the back of the police van, adjust the police siren to full volume. The haiku poet whose sandal foot has stopped bleeding insists on paying for the first two bottles of Beaujolais. <laughs> and it's not surprising that that led, off, led the book off in all sorts of directions, is it? No, no. Um, Great fun. So, yeah, I think, you know, I do write haiku. Ken never writes haiku, but sometimes haiku can be a bit too, too serious and um, 
I'm I'm making the fun out of that in in the poem, and then you know there is a bit of a cliche of the wine drinking poet, so I'm making a bit of fun at at that, and then everyone writes poetry, so the police one of the policemen shyly admits to writing poetry, so yeah, that poem just yeah. came out and out of living in Richmond and just. Yeah, I, I like to be wacky sometimes. Yeah. yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. And I think we're all probably sitting at home with our glasses of wine now instead of going oh. out. But no, oh. <laughs> we can dream yeah. of it. Right, right. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, yes, you're the first poet on this video version of uh, yeah. Poets Corner. You were going to come up to Sydney and read to us live. And yeah. uh, sorry we couldn't have that in the end, but uh, yeah. we've got this. And, yeah, thank uh, you. And it's been wonderful to have you. Um, now, this uh, video will be published on the Westwards YouTube station, Westwards Official. Uh, so, for people, that's where to find it. And we will be back, I hope, uh, in a month or so with the uh, wonderful poet, uh, Anne Casey. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. Bye now. Thank you.